Welcome to What Do You Know About? My name is Ash, and I will be your tour guide through the lesser-known stories of history. You can join us on your favorite podcast app, or come have a conversation on our Instagram at WDKA Podcast. But first, hold on tight, because we're about to go down a historical rabbit hole with today's episode. Hello, everybody. Fair due warning for this episode, we are discussing a Victorian-era violent crime that unfortunately involves a child. If this isn't for you, we completely understand and are happy to catch you next time. There is a good backlog of less triggering material for you, like, in the meantime. So, What if I just, like, got up and left the room? Just at that. I was like, no, I'm not here for this today. Never mind. Bye. Record by yourself. Doodles. <laughs> then I would have had to record by myself, and that would be fine. <laughs> so today's episode is actually brought to us by Blacksuit666, one of Kat's loyal followers on Twitch, and a follower oh of our God. podcast. <laughs> I thought you meant he sponsored it, and I was like, damn! Dedication. No, he didn't put money, but he did. But like, because as you know, Kat, I literally couldn't decide what topic to do next, so I gave one word clues to four options, and Black Suit picked for us. Join us on Twitch if you want to decide our next podcast. I guess. Oh no, I kind of already decided our next one because I was like, I need something like out of like the four that I had that I was like, I can't decide between these four right now. I then, for the next one, picked, like, one of, like, the lesser triggering (laughs) ones so that we had a little bit of a break after this. That's probably probably a good idea. Yeah. All right, but let's get right into it. Hey, Kat. Yeah? How were detectives invented? Oh, my gosh. I don't know. (laughs) This is exactly the kind of random shit I would expect myself to know, and and I don't, and I'm horrified that... You're asking that question, and you just said in the trigger warning that this has to do with the child's death. And I cannot imagine what horrendous things would have caused detectives to be invented in the first place. I know a little bit about the beginning of the police, but detectives specifically, I I don't know, but now I'm scared. (laughs) Okay, well, so detectives were basically invented, actually, when a French criminal turned to criminology as his career in 1833, and his story inspired many writers, including Edgar Allan Poe. So Edgar Allan Poe actually wrote the first fictional detective in his story, The Murders in the Rue Morgue, which was published in 1841 and may have actually been the first real use of the term detective. Wow. So, okay, so this French guy was a criminal, and then he was like, nah, actually, I'm going to use my criminal knowledge and skills for good? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't, I, mm, huh. I have so many questions about, like, the psychology behind that decision, and I don't think I'm going to get answers, so I'll let you continue. Yeah, I'm not giving you answers today. Um, but after August Dupin was released upon the world's imagination, the first English detectives were born into the London Metropolitan Police Department just one year later. Eight men were a part of this experimental force, including one of our protagonists. With that said, Kat, what do you know about Detective Jonathan, quote-unquote, Jack Witcher? Like the Witcher? Like toss a coin to your Witcher? No. Oh, Unfortunately, no. <laughs> um, yeah, 
No, I feel like if I, if the answer to this was that I knew anything about him, then I would have known the answer to your first question originally. So, Okay. Um, what do you know about the Road Hill House murder? See, that sounds familiar, but I think it's just because I'm thinking of the Hill House. Yeah, probably. Which is a different thing. <laughs> okay. So let's get into a little bit more background, and then we can dive right into the case and the detective involved. So the main portion of our story takes place in 1860 in and around Wiltshire, England. For those who aren't familiar with the county of Wiltshire, it is in the south of England and bordered by Dorset, Somerset, Hampshire, Gloucester, Oxfordshire, and Berkshire. That's a lot of shires. Yes. (laughs) The number one tourist attraction that I'm pretty sure everyone is aware of in Wiltshire is Stonehenge. Oh, okay. To put us into British history in general, 1860 is when the first nursing school based on Florence Nightingale's theories was established. The first professional golf tournament is held in Scotland. Great Expectations is published. And the first recorded fish and chip shops are opened. What, what a strange collection of things to all have happened in the same year. Right? Like... And that's just, like, some stuff. I just picked, like, some of the stuff that was, like, actually a bit more English. (laughs) Yeah. Than, like, the wars that had that, like, like, and stuff like that that were happening. Like, let's just pick some of the weird stuff that (laughs) can put us in this time frame. (laughs) Yeah, it's just, like, here's just, like, the only things that you know about the UK. Yeah. So Queen Victoria is on the throne and will be until 1901. While John Henry Temple is our Prime Minister until 1865 when he dies from a fever. Moving on to our new friend Jack Witcher. Um, He was born in 1814 and joined the Metropolitan Police in 1837 after he worked as a laborer for a bit. For reference, the Metropolitan Police officially formed in 1829 and is still going strong. It's now more commonly known as the Scotland Yard because the original headquarters entrance was on a street that is called Great Scotland Yard. Kind of like how Wall Street became the term for the stock exchange in New York, Scotland Yard became the term for police activities. Gotcha, Uh, gotcha, okay. They hold jurisdiction over the 32 boroughs of Greater London, but not in Central London. All of the... New headquarters, starting from the move in 1890, are known as the New Scotland Yard to continue the legacy of the name. Okay, that's a little bit, like, that feels like a bit of a cop-out. Like, hey guys, we don't have to be creative and come up with a new name if we just call it the New Scotland Yard. Well, and it's always, like, it's moved multiple times. And it's just constantly just called the New Scotland Yard. Not even, like, the New New Scotland Yard. The New 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 Scotland Yard. (laughs) Yeah. Just call it the Scotland Yard at that point. Like, Right. So when Witcher joined the detective branch with his seven other co-workers, he was given the number A27, which meant that he was in the Whitehall division and was very quickly moved up to being the detective sergeant. There are various descriptions of him, but the one that we need to know mo- about the most is that he was called the quote-unquote Prince of Detectives by one of his co-workers. Damn. The title bestowed on him really shows the reputation that he had as an amazing detective, even though there was a point where he was accused of entrapment in 1851. Oh, okay. In 1851? Yeah. 
He's been on the force for, what is that, 14 years? You said he joined in 1837? Uh, so he would be on the force for, like, about 14 years, but on the detective force for, like, nine. Gotcha. And he, mm, hmm, like, that's a long enough time that he may have been able to get that title without the entrapment, but, like, that kind of throws sort of a bad light on, like, everything else that he did leading up to that. Yeah, well, so what happened was he and another investigator saw a known convict and watched him mm. for weeks as he const- as he consistently met with another known criminal. The two of them were okay. literally sitting on a bench across from a bank every day for six weeks, just watching the bank. Both convicts finally robbed the bank after six weeks of doing this, but they weren't caught until they were on the run after the incident. Hang on. And then they called that entrapment because they let them do the thing that they were planning on doing before catching them? Yeah, because the papers were furious and reamed them out for not stopping the crime before it actually happened when the bank was clearly being staked out by these two criminals daily for six weeks while they watched, like, while the officers watched the criminals watch the bank for six weeks. Okay, but do you know what's a lot easier to prove? Guys holding bags of money running away from a bank with guns in their hands. It is so much easier to prove that they did it. Yeah. It is so much easier to, like, make sure that they get locked up and, like, stay locked up than if you're like, these guys sat on the same bench in front of this bank for a real long time. It's like, okay, but, like, they could argue that they're just sitting on a bench. If they don't have any other evidence. Yes, but this no is also the hurt. Victorian era where evidence didn't always matter. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Nowadays, yes, evidence matters. Then, evidence didn't matter. It was like, you had a chance to stop the bank robbery. You watched them do, like, stake it out for six weeks. What the hell were you doing? (laughs) That's kind of a terrifying thought. Like, that just, like, people could just accuse people and then, like, argue well enough. And then they'd be, like, thrown in jail for stuff. Like, that's that's kind of worse. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so one of the top cases that Witcher worked on was the hunt for Napoleon III's attempted assassin. So he was, like, one of the men that um, ended up actually catching the assassin, like, the assassin after the attempted murder. Wow. Um, he also solved a couple of high-profile burglary cases and helped to solve a murder the year before the case in question that we're going to talk about today. All right. So the year is 1860. And the fanciful notion of being a detective took everyone by storm. I'd be keen to say that this is probably the year that everyone became armchair detectives for the first time, as folks looked at this like, at this case and tried to solve it themselves. Literally hundreds of people from all around England wrote into the papers, to the Home Secretary, and to the Scotland Yard with their theories, suspicions, and solutions to the crime. This that crime doesn't sound too different from today, to be honest. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. Was I'm like, okay, so like. Basically, like, this might be, like, the first time that people, like, really started doing, like, what we already do today. Yeah, yeah. It's only gotten worse since then. Yeah. So, this crime is also exactly how we know anything about Roadhill House now. Down to the finest detail, including exactly who called on the family the day before the murder. So, let's start on Friday, June 29th, 1860. Road Hill House was occupied by Samuel Kent, his pregnant second wife, Mary, his three daughters and son from his first marriage, his two daughters and one son from this current marriage, the nursemaid, Elizabeth, 
the housemaid Sarah, and the cook also named Sarah. That is so many people. Yeah. Also, what happened to his first wife? Did she die or did they break up? I'm going to tell you that in a bit. Did he murder her? Okay, sorry, continue. <laughs> I mean, there's actually kind of a possibility, but... Oh my god, wait. <laughs> um, so they also had six sorry. servants who did not live in the home. The children ranged from Marianne, who was 29 years old, to Evelyn, who was just a year old at the time. Those from the first marriage ranged from 29 to 14, while the children from the second marriage were in the ranges of 5 and 1. That is so many kids. Yeah. That's like, oh my god, no wonder his ex-wife is his ex-wife. That's too many kids for a woman to have, and they maintain her sanity. That is like... That's so many kids. Yeah, so Samuel's first wife, Mary Ann Windis, had passed away in 1852, and he was remarried to Mary Drew Pratt by the next year. There was a 19-year age gap between Samuel and his second Mary. In fact, Mary like Mary Ann, like the kid, her new mother was only 11 years older than her, which cannot have been easy for her, like the family to adjust to. Uh, yeah, that's, wait, hang on, a huge age gap, which matters when you're in your, like, early 20s, like, 18, 19, when you're the younger person, and then you're dating someone who's, like, that much older than you, that is a huge age gap, matters less when you're, like, 40, 50, like, how old are we talking Um, about? I think Samuel, at this point, is in his 50s, so she's, like, in her 30s, maybe? Okay. Okay, so that's, like, Yeah, because 11 years difference between Marianne, the oldest, who was 29, and her new mom. Right, okay. Yeah, okay, that's not, like, as bad. It's not like he's dating, like, a 25-year-old and he's, like, 50. Yeah, it's just I think that the kids, I I think it's would be more that the kids are going to be, like, the older kids are going to be like, uh, this is a little awkward. It's a little awkward, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. She's, like, closer in age to the oldest daughter than him, but... Yeah. At that point, they're both, like, fully developed adults, so it's kind of like, eh, do your thing. So, a key feature in this story that everyone kind of needs to know is the family sleeping arrangements. I know that's odd at first, but it's literally key to a lot further down the road. To start. Okay. I mean, sure, lots of people to pack into one house. Yeah. Well, it's a big house. It's, like... Three stories, big house. Um, Better be. <laughs> but yeah. Um, to start, a little five-year-old Mary Amelia slept in the same bedroom as her mother and father. A few feet away was the nursery where three-year-old Seville and one-year-old Evelyn would sleep with their nursemaid, Elizabeth. The two Sarahs lived on the second floor, in, like sharing a bedroom, along with the four children from Samuel's first marriage. Marianne and Elizabeth, the eldest daughters, shared a room, while their younger sister Constance and even younger brother William had separate bedrooms. Okay. That's a lot to wrap my head around. I need, like, a map. <laughs> yeah. So, basically, what you what people really need to know is that... Mom, dad, and the eldest of the new children, same bedroom. The nursemaid and then the two youngest kids are in a bedroom together on the first floor as well. 
then the two and then then that the two Sarahs are in a bedroom, the two eldest daughters are in a bedroom, and then the other two have separate bedrooms. So Constance right, and okay. William have separate bedrooms from everybody else. Like they're just on their own. <clears throat> so throughout the day of the 29th, people came and went to the household like clockwork. The gardener and his two helpers spent the day working on the landscape. The chimney sweep came in in the morning for a couple hours and a knife grinder popped in to sharpen the knives for the cook. Later in the day, a washerwoman who lived nearby dropped in to return the laundry. By 7 p.m., it was just those who lived in the house left on the property. Evelyn was put to bed a half hour later, followed by Seville at 8 p.m. once he was given his laxative for a mild illness that he had just recently had. Nursemaid Elizabeth later said that Seville was sleeping as soundly as ever as he had missed his nap that day due to her tidying the nursery when he'd normally take one. The nursery itself was very quiet in every way, including the door when it was opened and shut. This is something that nursemaid Elizabeth was quite proud of, as it meant that she could sneak in and out when she was checking up on the children without waking them. In the yard was the family's pet Newfoundland guard dog. By midnight, everyone was in bed, with the house being thoroughly locked shut around 11.30 p.m. Um, So around 1 a.m. on the 30th of June, a neighbor was laying out his fishing net when he heard the sound of a dog bark. One of the police constables was walking home after his shift in the same area when he heard the Kent's dog give approximately six yelps. No one thought the dog. No one thought anything of it as the Newfie was known to bark at the, the littlest thing. Oh no. Their gardener, who lived close sometimes, would wake up in the night to the dog barking and have to go hush him. The current Mrs. Kent was also awake in the night, sleeping restlessly around her pregnant belly. She remembered hearing something like the drawing room windows, like window shutters being opened, but had shrugged it off as being one of the servants waking up early to start work as the morning light was just starting to seep through the windows. That morning, the sun was rising just a few moments before 4 a.m., when nursemaid Elizabeth woke up, she gently recovered Eveline's like blankets because she had kicked them off in the night and noticed that Seville wasn't in his bed. She didn't think much of it as the bed sheets had been smoothed over as if it was her or Mrs. Kent who had gently scooped him up. She figured that he must have cried in the night and was taken to bed with Mrs. Kent who was awake to hear him before Elizabeth could be aroused like by the cries. Oh no, oh no. Sarah, oh, no. Sarah Cox, the housemaid Sarah, went to unlock the drawing room around 6 a.m. and noticed that it was already open along with the shutters and the window. It wasn't open much, but it was unusual as Mr. Kent always closed everything up at night for the family's safety. Sarah Cox figured maybe somebody else had already opened it to air out the room a little, so she just closed it again. Mm. The gardener and his two helpers also arrived at the home around 6 a.m. to start their day in the stable. It wasn't until just after 7 a.m. that nursemaid Elizabeth and Mrs. Kent found themselves in the middle of a confusing, awkward conversation. Okay. Neither woman had Seville or knew where he was. When Elizabeth admitted that she thought Mrs. Kent had him starting around, like, 5 a.m., like, is when she kind of had waken up at first and noticed him gone... 
Mrs. Kent was taken aback as she had complained the other day that Seville was too heavy for her to pick up at eight months pregnant. So there was no way she would have gone to the child in the night. Oh my God. Okay. So that's like a lot of signs of a break-in to ignore. Like your child, like there's, there's a child that you can't immediately account for. There's a window that's wide open and you're not going to think about these two things being in connection. Like my anxiety would be off the rails immediately. Yeah. Like, as soon as I saw a kid was missing, I was like, no, mm-mm, Well, no, I don't think no. that at this point, like, the nursemaid or Mrs. Kent knew that the window was open. That is a very, so, like, so far, it's basically just that everybody has, like, a different piece of this puzzle and nobody has connected it yet. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, the next steps were to head upstairs and ask the stepchildren. Mr. and Mrs. Kent conversed for a brief moment with Mr. Kent saying that they should see where Seville is than if he wasn't in bed. Like, no shit. (laughs) You don't say. Maybe you should go looking for the missing child. I don't know. That seems like a good plan. Both Marianne and daughter Elizabeth said that they didn't know where Seville was when nursemaid Elizabeth knocked on their door. Uh, Constance didn't make a comment about it at all when she came out of her next door room at the commotion. William's room was further down the hall, and he also seemed to be unsure about the boy's whereabouts. The rest of the house servants were then asked about the young master, and housemaid Sarah told nursemaid Elizabeth about the open window. Mr. Kent, now finally on the search himself, (laughs) went out to talk to the outside staff at about 7.30 a.m., telling the gardeners that young Master Seville was lost, stolen, and carried away. That's... I mean, one of those things would have gotten the point across. That feels excessive and just kind of, like, uh, inconsiderate, to phrase it like that, for one thing. Uh, For another thing, I, like, there's so many people in that house. Yeah. How the fuck? (laughs) Like, there's so many people in that house. There's a lot of people in the house, and there's a lot of people who come and go. Right. But, like, in the middle of the night... And you said these ones were sleeping on the third floor, right? Uh, second floor. So I think it looks like, from what I've seen, that they sleep on the first floor and the second floor. I'm wondering if, like, okay. the third floor is more, like, storage, attic kind like of space. Attic. Okay. Like, or used that way. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so if they're on the first floor, that makes a little bit more sense. If they're on the third floor, I was going to be like, how the frick did they, like, stealth their way up through this entire house full of so many people? Yeah. <clears throat> So, Mr. Kent then sent one of the outdoor staff members, along with William, to get two police officers who lived nearby to assist them in the search. Mr. Kent himself got in his carriage and rode off to get a police superintendent that he knew. It was at this point that Mrs. Kent realized that a blanket from Seville's bed was was missing, sharing that information with her husband just before he took off. She was apparently quite pleased hoping that the blanket was keeping her son warm. I can kind of understand that perspective. Like, at least they're, like, trying to keep him alive, because if they were going to kill him anyway, then they wouldn't care to take a blanket. So I kind of understand where she's coming from with that. Yeah. Mr. Kent met with the two officers at the gate, where they suggested an officer who was closer who could then send a message onwards. But Mr. Kent was adamant on riding the five miles to Trowbridge for the man he was acquainted with. 
He was like, no, I'm not going to talk to an officer who could get the message out and I could stay here and help search for my son. I will go and travel 10 miles altogether to go find this guy who I I don't even think he knew where he had to, where he lived because he had to, once he got to the, to Trowbridge, he had to ask around to find the guy. Mr. Kent is looking a little suspicious right now. I'm not going to lie. I'm not convinced that he isn't riding out all that way on his own to hide a body, perhaps. So, like, I, I don't know that I trust Mr. Kent right now. He's going to have to earn earn it back for me. Yeah. So, word started to spread across town, and a couple of those who knew the family started to show up to search. They mm-hmm. did not let anyone on the property know that they were joining the search, just keeping to the front bushes before heading to the outdoor servant's toilet that was hidden in the bushes. What? So, you know, just come onto their property and start searching for the kid because you heard the rumor around town that, the, that there's a kid missing. Don't tell yeah. anybody, though. You can be like, hey, just to let you know, I'm, I'm coming and joining the search. Where would you like me to look? <laughs> what the actual heck? Just, we're just going to start searching the front bushes. No one's going to care because we're searching for the kids so we can be on their property. It's fine. That's, that's, like, that's, I I can't, I can't. Like, do you, that just, oh, I can't, I can't. That's such a dumb move. Like, so, you have to tell people that you're involved. Otherwise, you look super suspicious just lurking around someone's property. Right. So while they were searching, um, the out they they did go to the outdoor servants' toilet. Uh, when they looked in, they saw clotted blood. So Ooh. one of the men went up to the house and asked for a candle so they could get a better look. Uh, fair, okay. So at least now somebody knows that they're looking on their property. Well, because yeah, now they they, the because they're like, wait, what are you doing here? Why do you need a candle? And they're like, oh yeah, we're searching for the kid. We're hoping. <laughs> You probably could have mentioned that a little while ago, and we could have helped you help a little more efficiently, but sure, okay. Yeah. Um, So while the one guy was fetching the candle, the other man opened the lid to the toilet bowl and saw a blanket. Oh, no. When he moved it, it was immediately evident that the search was over. Oh, baby. I'm going to pause here just because I want to reiterate that this is not a story for the faint of heart. While I do not want to have to describe this scene, it is kind of key to the story. And I promise it'll be over quickly and we can continue on to the case itself to just see how bad forensic investigations were in the mid-1800s. Okay. All right. So, Seville's body was found approximately two feet under the seat on a wooden board that kind of blocks the way further down into the pit that was the 1800s version of plumbing. Oh my god, right, okay. He was laying on his side with one arm and leg slightly drawn up, like as if he was sleeping. One of the random neighbors who found him pulled him out of his resting place where it became clear that his cause of death was most likely the near beheading that he had. Oh, baby, no! Yeah. That's absolutely horrific. That poor kid. They, I, oh. Yeah. Oh, no. That's, like, to go through something so violent when he's so small and innocent, and then to be disposed of like that is just gut-wrenching that is absolutely horrific i am 
absolutely appalled. That's so... Oh, this poor baby. Yeah, I'm like, this poor three-year-old kid that is, like, innocent in all of this. Right? Oh, God. So, they put his fully stiff body onto the blanket, wrapped him up, and carried him to the house where he was gently placed on a table under the kitchen window. So, already we have one point against the investigation of who murdered this sweet, innocent boy. Ye- mm. Nowadays, we know you don't move a body. That there is yeah. probably a lot of evidence that has now been ruined by taking the kid out of this spot. And I didn't see well, like, the officers see how he was placed, positioned and, like, positioned and everything, and then moving him completely from there. Because now you've got people trampling through the crime scene. You've got him being moved, and now there's all sorts of fingerprints on him, if you even I mean, had fingerprints at this time, which you didn't, but still. Right. That's true, and I hear that. But really, in that circumstance, the only foot, like evidence I could really see them looking for would be like footprints. But it doesn't sound like they'd be around the body because it sounds like the baby or like the the body was just like dropped into this pit, right? So I don't really know. Well, he had to be placed fairly well, like fairly like into the pit. Does he look like he was like tucked in? Yeah, because like your toilets aren't that big. Like yes, well, he like he's a three year old kid, but he's it's still not like like the size of a three year old boy is still going to be a little bit bigger than the actual toilet hole itself that he was shuff- like put into. Yeah, yikes! I don't know. I just I don't totally know like what evidence they might have been able to get from that. But you also had the blood all over like the floor. Actual... <laughs> well, right. Yeah. So you would and stuff. Right. So like as far as I know. Then, like, after this, it wasn't very well searched where he was. It, then it's just that the grounds were searched rather than, like, where he actually was and, like, trying to figure out, okay, well, what route did the person take? I was just going <clears> to <throat> say, um, if anyone's listening right now and you're, like, an actual crime scene investigator, uh, educate my dumb brain and <laughs> tell me what evidence could they have possibly picked up in this situation because, like... Yeah, blood and blood spatter, I I see that. But, like, other than that, like, I really don't know what else he would have left behind that they would have been able to, like, use back then, you know? Yeah. So, this is when even more neighbors descended upon the house. And soon, mm. everyone is searching the grounds for clues, police officers mm. included. I'm not sure about the family and staff, but from what I've read on the case, I don't think that they really helped the investigation, as, like, I know that the older daughters, for sure, were steered away when they saw their brother's body. Oh. Just laying oh, no, in the kitchen. Like, he's just laying in the kitchen, and then I think he's they moved just... to, like, the um, the uh, food parlor, <laughs> the pantry, basically, like, so that Are he's out of the way of the house investigation. Of all the places you could put, like, the body, I don't have, like, why there? <laughs> I guess it's just like, because there's closer and then it's, like, out of the way. Like, I guess they weren't going to search the food pantry, know. so you move the kid to the food. I don't know. It's the 1860s. It's so, it's so gross. It's the 1860s, okay? Remember, Lizzie Borden's parents were literally left on the dining room table for three days inside the home after they were before they are buried because that's just how things are done 
Okay, dining room table, I can almost understand that one. But a body that was just like a, 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 a not alive anymore body that was just pulled out of a toilet being put next to raw food. Ew. <laughs> yeah. That's so unbelievably like I like that's oh that's a whole lot of nope like that's like not even really treating the the body like the kid with any more respect than like his murderer did that's awful yeah oh I can't get over that that's so like but we have to remember it's the 1860s okay detectives are still new they are under 10 like under 20 years old (laughs) it's so gross though so oh god one major piece Mm -hmm. of evidence that i want to talk about that was found and mishandled was a bloody nightgown the nightgown was stuffed up the chimney and the superintendent that mr kent had fetched decided maybe they should just switch out the nightgown to see if they could catch the killer in the act of destroying the evidence for what what the frick kind of logic is that I don't know, because unfortunately for them, the two officers that they put on guard somehow got locked into the kitchen, and by morning, the nightgown was gone. Oh, my fuck. I can't. I can't. Is there like, a on the like, scene yet, or is like, this just all local police this still? Is just, this is still like, the, local, like, the local police, but I'm like, this is just a comedy, almost, with, like, the police just like get locked really... in the kitchen by the killer, before, so they can't even see who the killer is. They just somehow look at themselves locked into the kitchen. This is like an early 2000s, like, edge lord dark comedy at this point. Like, I, like, there's so much about this that is so messed up. Like, I, what? <laughs> yeah, but it gets even worse because fearing retribution, the superintendent, the one from five miles away, who was brought right. specifically for this case. He left this piece of evidence out of the picture for as long as he could because he didn't want to get in trouble or mocked for the fact that his officers got locked in the kitchen and that their key piece of evidence was just gone without them actually catching the person doing it. That is so egotistical. I, I can't. What the actual heck? Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. So... By this point, we pretty much kind of know that the murderer was likely one of the females in the house from this piece of evidence. Given the nightgown, sure. The question is, though, which one? There are a lot. Their number one suspect is nursemaid Elizabeth. So, the theory from the officers was that Elizabeth was having an affair with Mr. Kent, and somehow Seville knew about it. Because how else could you keep a three-year-old quiet with their siblings and mother? The the three the three the theory is that this whole adult woman was threatened by a three-year-old. Yes, because she's having an affair with his father. That is that is what the police decided was like the number one theory for this case. Listen, listen, this child is three. You can tell him anything, anything in the world and he will probably believe you yeah you just have to make it make sense to him that's it you can tell him anything anything the idea of killing a kid because he found out you were having an affair he doesn't know what an affair is 
No. This is the dumbest, like... But you have to think about it in the period of the 1860s that they are that this is a upper class family, so they are saying that it's the lower class housemaid, like nursemaid. So sorry, saying she's dumb. So they're basically saying that like, oh well, she's going on top of everything. Well, she's the easy one to blame. She's the scapegoat. Yeah, <clears throat> like she's got oh, the she's got access to the kid. She's literally sleeping in the room with him. Ugh. She saw he was missing, but didn't say anything because she. Because she stupidly thought that the eight-month pregnant woman was going to be the one to carry the kid off. And that he was just in the room with his mom. Because, you know, why would you think that the mother, even when eight months pregnant, wouldn't come to get their crying child in the night? Right? That would make more sense. Like, I... Let's all, let's all just, like, listeners, let's all just huddle together for a second. We're just going to take a real deep breath in and a real deep breath out. Okay. I'm losing my mind over this case. This is so unbelievably mishandled. I like, yeah, this is horrific. There's more. This kid deserves better. Okay. So, <laughs> an inquiry was immediately called for in the death, and all staff, officers, and doctors who were on the scene between the 29th and the 30th were questioned. This happens about the 2nd of July. Okay. So, like, just like a few days after. So the right. jury then requested that the family would be questioned as well but okay. only constance and william were questioned so the oh. 16 and the 14 year old okay so because of the nightgown thing we're pretty sure it's a woman right so we're gonna ask one of them yeah and just hope we guessed right well is that the plan so it was at this time that like the nightgown debacle finally came into evidence and it was found that the nightgown had belonged to Constance. Okay. So they literally only questioned Constance and William for like I don't even know why they were questioning William. They never talked to Mr. and Mrs. Kent. Like they were basically okay. like immediately they were like the parents are completely and utterly just not even part of this. Like they're innocent. Don't even bother even questioning them at all or making it seem like you might have any suspicions of the parent. They're the parents. They have the most authority in this household of so many people. Yeah. Why would you not? You'd think. I don't understand. So, uh, however, the case really went like nowhere over the coming period. So the Scotland Yard was sent for. (laughs) Okay. Therefore, our friend Jack Witcher is finally on the case. Oh, thank God. <laughs> However, uh-huh. he immediately latched onto Constance and her no. nightgown. No. <laughs> His claim was that she got away with missing, with like missing this nightgown by blaming the washing lady for losing it during the weekly wash. Bruh. That that's basically like, well, she had to have done it, but like nobody thought about it, and it, and like it could go for so long that we didn't know it was her nightgown because she was saying, oh, well, I have a nightgown missing, but it's missing because the la- like the washing lady would have done it. This isn't okay. even from like her mouth or anything. This is just him going. This is I bet you what's happening, and I am I Jack Witcher, like therefore I'm right. <laughs> I, I would like to place bets and stake people's lives on it, if y'all don't mind. Pretty much. 
What the heck? Um, so he basically spent his time looking for the circumstantial evidence against Constance. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, so this is the thing. I was listening to another case um, on My Favorite Murder about a similar thing where the person that the police wanted to pin for it wasn't the person who did it. And they spent so much time and literally decades trying to find evidence and trying to make evidence fit the crime. They completely overlooked the guy who very clearly, very obviously did it. And like the, the person who died never really got justice justice for it. And it's so messed up that this has been happening since day one and we still haven't learned. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, so yeah, you so have, you have to find the suspect that fits the crime. You cannot make the crime fit the suspect. You're going to get the wrong person if you do that. I just like no, just no. Fired. No, immediately fired. Exactly. No. So yeah, so he's searching for the circumstantial evidence, and he gets enough that he can put out an arrest for Constance. He's then given seven days to make his case. Unfortunately okay. for Witcher. Mr. Kent knew a really good barrister who could dominate the proceedings, getting his daughter released on bail and the case dropped. I mean, given the fact that I don't really think Constance did it, I'm glad that she didn't have to face the consequences, but I do think somebody in that house did and the case should be dropped for that and I'm still suspicious of the dad. So, the strong determination of Witcher at pinning the murder of the boy on Constance did not sit well with the public. All of the papers were sympathetic to the grieving half-sister of the victim and scraped Witcher over hot coals. Soon, the public was crying for his removal from the force, and he obliged, retiring early, saying it was for health reasons. Hmm. Part of convenient. (laughs) So part of the reason, though, for the public upheaval was that Witcher was a working-class detective who was accusing an upper-class 16-year-old girl of murdering her brother. The class difference was too great, and it rubbed everyone the wrong way. His reputation would never be salvaged. No doubt. So this is literally considered the case that broke, like, the prince of detectives. (laughs) Yeah, this is the one that threw him off the throne, huh? Yeah. So, the nightdress was never actually found, and Witcher moved back to London. The local police continued on their case against the nursemaid Elizabeth, ultimately failing to find proper evidence against her as well. Okay. So, instead of just, like, trying to figure out who the facts actually fit, they're just, like, picking random woman from the house and well, being like probably you let's look into this so and just kind of they really like the like, really like they had like their two main suspects elizabeth and constance oh my God. so the local police were all over elizabeth like the local were all over elizabeth while your scotland yard like prince of detectives was all over constance that it had to be one of them <laughs> okay so that is uh, yep Five years went by with the case considered closed and unsolved. But suddenly, during a church confession, one of the original suspects makes a shocking confession to the reverend, who went to the magistrate to share the details he could upon request from, like, our suspect here. Okay. 
Constance claimed that she waited for the family to be asleep before she snuck downstairs to open the drawing room door and window. She then took a sleeping Savelle, snuck him out of the house, and killed him in the servant privy with a razor blade that she stole from her father. Which, as far as I know, we hadn't found the razor blade. <laughs> so, okay. by this point, like, this is, like, the first thing where they're like, oh, this is the murder weapon. Great, good to know. That's the first time. Oh, okay. So, uh, so it's, this is, to be clear, this isn't Constance that's saying this. It's some other person saying that they're speaking for Constance. Sort of. So, the, when, so then they brought her in and she, like, so, this, so the reverend got this confession from Constance, apparently, went to the police on upon her request to, and mm. then they, she was taken in and she, and then she, like, she gave, like, her confession to them as well. Okay. As to a motive, it was thought that she perhaps wanted revenge on her stepmother and father for their marriage and that she was, like, in general, mentally unbalanced. So gotcha. okay. the public were not convinced. You see, Mr. Mm-hmm. Kent is known to be an adulterer. His newer wife was actually a governess for the children, and he was having an affair with her before his first wife passed. But he still had a second wife that wasn't her? So his, so his first wife, he had an affair. So his first wife named Marianne, he was uh-huh. having an affair with a governess named Mary, who then he married once she, when she died. Uh-huh. Okay. And he was known to also, like, have, like, adultery, like, adulterous affairs with other women as well. But this is, like, the one where everybody's, like, we know for sure that he is an adulterer because he just now married the woman that he was cheating on his wife with while his wife was dying. Oh, that's so messed up. Oh, that is so messed up. So we can tell why the children probably were not happy because mm, their yeah. governess is now their new mother. Oh, that's so messed up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, knowing this information, the public were convinced that he was also having an affair with nursemaid Elizabeth, and therefore it was the nursemaid who killed the child to keep the affair quiet. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so now we're blaming Elizabeth. Okay, okay, okay. But, I, like, but hang on. That's, that's, a very, that's a very cool story. That's, like... It's very dramatic, 10 out of 10, but, like, I, uh... Hang on, though. Many also suspected Mr. Kent, as he apparently had more information about the crime in question when he was on the way to the superintendent that anybody else had at the time. So, like, as he was doing his five-mile trip, he was talking to people about the crime and giving them details that weren't known yet. That's what I mean. That's what I meant when I said he's, like, super, super sus. He, like, literally, they're like, oh, the kid's missing. And he's like, I'm going to leave now and not be around to help find my son instead of letting someone else carry this message for me. I'm going to go deliver it myself. Like, that's so freaking suspicious. Like, I I think it's Kent. I think it's Mr. Kent. Well, you are in famous company. As one such figure who suspected Mr. Kent was Charles Dickens, who wrote the mystery of Edwin Drood after this case had caught his attention. It is suspected oh that the Road Hill House murder case actually inspired the novel. Oh my <laughs> well, he's smart, so that must mean I'm smart, because we came to the same conclusion. <laughs> but 
that no matter what the public perceived, Constance had confessed to the murder of her brother. So she was taken back to trial. Oh, sweetie. It sounds like she was pressured. Like, I'm totally, like, just making stuff up now. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll own that. But it does kind of sound like she was pressured into taking the fall for her dad. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I just don't know if I trust this confession. That's all. So the court deemed her guilty by admittance and sentenced mm. her to death. However, she only served 20 years as her sentence ended up being put down to life in prison due to her age at the time of the murder and the fact that she confessed. But then she also got out early. So she was 41 when she was released and she changed her name to Ruth Emily Kay as she moved to Australia to join with her brother William. To make money, Constance, now Ruth, trained to be a nurse and worked at a few hospitals along with a girls' school before her retirement in 1931. Either she did a really great job of turning her life around, or it wasn't her to begin with. Well, the public back in England continued to swear that her admission of guilt was false. In the book Ah, that I actually use as my main source, the author is pretty certain that it wasn't her father or the nursemaid that Constance was protecting. But her brother, William. Because the siblings were apparently extremely close and grew even closer when their father basically abandoned all emotional support of his first children for his new family. Ooh, nope, that's fair. So the idea is that they committed the murder out of revenge towards their father for this slight against them because he made it well known that Seville was his favorite child. That's messed up. First of all, messed up to, like make it known and second of all like messed up that that's the lengths that you have to go to to address that situation like he's not listening to anything else like ooh, ooh, yeah that's dark so constance um never gave a motive for the murder during her confessions or testimonies instead she mm-hmm. swore that she bore no hatred or jealousy towards the little boy which is kind of one of the things that they're like okay it's either constance <laughs> Or William, or both of them, that they were kind of, like, in cahoots. Yeah, like, so this doesn't add, actually add up then. Yeah. So that means that most likely court, like, like in this scenario, it was a 16 and a 14-year-old that killed their three-year-old, almost four-year-old little brother because their father pretty much was like, nope, this is my favorite kid. That's so messed up. Oh, yikes. That's like, how heartless does your dad have to be? Because I imagine that, like violence isn't the first step in most cases, right? Like it doesn't sound like the kid, like the whoever did it, whichever family member did it, it doesn't sound like they were ever caught for doing anything violent like that again. No, because of the way, because because the public had their eyes on them, like they would have like. You know, anything. They stepped on a line, anything. It would have been, like, held up to everybody, you'd think. Yeah. So, like, it doesn't sound like anybody did anything violent after that, which means that it's, like, it's not something that, like, comes naturally to them. You know? Like, it's not like we're dealing with a serial killer here. It sounds like a, like, uh, like, it sounds calculated, but it sounds at the same time, like, it's due to a lot of built-up emotion. Yeah. And, like, how many times do you have to tell your dad, hey, you're hurting me before you go and lash out and do something like this? Like, this bad. Like, that's just, like, I, ah. Doesn't justify murder. 
I feel for the kids that like died more than like the small child that died is obviously like the victim in this, but like at the same time, the kid that killed him, like I can't imagine what agony he must have been going through to have been pushed to that end at the same time, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so awful. Yeah. So this is just an overview of the crime as there's a lot of evidence to sift through. If you're interested in the gritty details, please do check out Kate Summerscale's book, The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher. For a more Hollywood look at the detective himself, I really recommend the British TV series slash movie franchise based on him and his cases, including this one. You can find most episodes and films in The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher, so same names, makes it easier, book and TV and movies are named the same thing, through uh, BritBox. So, as I said earlier, next week I am going to lighten the mood slightly with a scandal that shook Paris to its core through World War II. Ooh. Well, sorry, the scandal happened during World War II, didn't come out, though, till, like, much later um, in the timeline. There are secrets okay. to uncover beneath the skin. And yes, that is a slight clue, so take it as you will. Family drama and business dealings don't stay hidden when you run one of the world's largest makeup companies. Okay. And that is all I'm giving you. No, I need more now. What? Is it like the first plastic surgery or something? If the secret is beneath the skin, that's all I can think about is that it's like implants of some kind. No? No, no, no. no. I have questions. I have questions. Well, you can find out answers to your questions later. (laughs) Oh, you can't keep doing this to me. I mean, you can. We literally like. I can. I have that power. Out, like, like I literally uh, have that power. You put that power into my hands. I did. Did do that, didn't I? That was your first mistake. That was my first mistake, to be honest. All right. So, with that being said, take care of yourselves, especially after today's episode. And we will see you soon on the weird, crazy lesser-known sides of history. Yeah, go take a bubble bath, drink some wine, have a snack, probably some water, I don't know. (laughs) Whatever you need at this point, go do it. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much self-care right now. Yeah, we're giving you official permission. All right. See you guys all later. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope that you found something new and will check out the resources in the show notes to get more information. In the meantime, I would really appreciate it if you could rate and review on your favorite podcast platform so more history nerds can find me. Don't forget to check out our Instagram page at WDYKA Podcast, as well as considering helping me out with a donation or membership on Buy Me a Coffee. The link is in the show notes and on our IG link tree. Thanks so much and see you next time on the lesser known side of history.